You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, recording from Maryland. Always good to be back with you, Katie. How, yes. how remarkable it is that May is already over. We're almost in June 2022. The time just flies. Yeah, by the time this is out, it will be June. And uh, yeah, June, as I think we said at the last episode, is going to be a very busy month. Uh, we've already had a very busy month in May uh, in in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, we had, of course, a trip by President Biden to the region, an, an Australian federal election that has resulted in a change of government, which we will talk about a little bit on this episode. Um, but the thing I really wanted to sort of get to uh, on this episode is um, something that we've had some demand from listeners o- over the years. And we used to talk about this a lot more, uh, which is the issue of geoeconomics and uh, economic tradecraft in the Indo-Pacific region. And of course, uh, our more attentive listeners will, of course, be aware that um, the main peg for this discussion today is the Biden administration's release of its Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity, or IPEF for short. Um, this is, I think, fair to say a highly anticipated part of the Biden administration's overall Indo-Pacific strategy. I think it's telling on some level that the Biden administration released an Indo-Pacific strategy document before having the framework actually fully completed. Um, and, you know, just generally, Katie, I mean, I think longtime listeners on this podcast probably know it's a bit of a hobby horse for me that the U.S., I mean, pretty much since the Obama administration uh, and even during the Obama administration in some ways, TPP support aside, the U.S. has sort of been consistently missing a lot of the demand signals from the from this region with regard to economic integration, economic statecraft, uh, the kinds of things that Asian countries really want to see. And when it comes to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, I think we have mm, a bit of a a bit of a mixed bag, in my opinion. Um, but uh, you know, I think maybe the place to begin is to talk a little bit about what exactly this is. Uh, and it's and it's interesting because I think it's it's much easier to talk about the framework in terms of what it's not, which is that it is very much not a conventional free trade agreement. Uh, there is no market access expansion for its participating countries. The U.S. is not opening up its market. There is no removal of tariffs or non-tariff barriers. And really, uh, uh, it, it, it really focuses on standards, technology, uh, anti-corruption, um, general principles for, for trade and economic cooperation. But it's, but it's really, I think, a, a very specific kind of agreement uh, that, that this region has, I think, mixed views on. Yeah, I mean, one of the major complaints, and we discussed this back when the Indo-Pacific policy was initially revealed, the biggest criticism everybody had was, well, what about the economic piece? Because the economic piece is arguably the most important aspect of U.S. engagement in Asia. It's one of the most important aspects when it comes to competition with China. And yet, it really wasn't there. It wasn't fleshed out. Uh, I think the administration made the argument they needed more time to to really put it together. Um, and now that it's come out, uh, you know, you you hit the nail on the head. We can talk more about what it's not than it we can about what it is because it's not. You know, on the one hand, it does have specific themes. You know, it fair and resilient trade, supply chain resilience, infrastructure, clean energy, decarbonization, tax and anti-corruption stuff. But those aren't necessarily specific initiatives or things that you know are tangible. So, you know, one question I have for you, Ankit, is when you look at this agreement, let's try to talk about what is it? You know, are yeah. there there's no binding it's not a binding agreement, there's no 
pledges for you know future negotiation like you would see in in the development of an fta or or something like cptpp so so what is this so i think I think there's a generous way to look at the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and then there's the more cynical way. And I, I'll try to do the administration. Let's be generous. Let's be. Let's begin <laughs> by being generous, which is that, you know, the administration has been talking a lot about framing the strategic environment for China in in this region, uh, and and doing that I think requires some vision of economic statecraft because that's an area where China gives tremendous amounts of thought to how it approaches countries. Uh, it's been doing this for years, particularly under the Belt and Road Initiative, and which has seen some calibra- recalibrations in recent years, um, and, and certainly during the pandemic. Um, but so this is part of that broader effort. Biden, I think, has described the Indo-Pacific Economic uh, Framework when he was announcing its release in Tokyo uh, as sort of an attempt by the United States to write the rules for the new 21st century economy in this part of the world. Um, and he emphasized the framework's emphasis on high standards and inclusivity and noted that while it's the United States and 12 other countries that are joining at the outset, it will be open to others who wish to join in the future. Now, let's pivot a little bit more to the cynical side of things, which is that everything I just said about what, what the language that Biden used to, to describe the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework reminds me a tremendous amount of the language that President Obama used to use to promote the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, of course, was a free trade agreement that has gone mm-hmm. on and found second wind under uh, the name Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP. Um, and by the way, all of this is happening against the backdrop of an Asia-Pacific region that has very much moved on from the United States sort of pulling out of the TPP, which was something that uh, former President Trump did on his first week in office, fulfilling a, a, a campaign pledge. And I think maybe we can get back and talk a little bit about the domestic politics of, of all of this in the United States, which makes it very difficult for any U.S. president to really meet the demand signals from the Indo-Pacific on the economic statecraft side. Uh, and so who's in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and, and how does this sort of fit into the broader patchwork that we have between not only the CPTPP, but the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership or RCEP, which is an ASEAN-centered initiative that includes many more countries in the region. So the countries that are participating uh, in CPTPP, uh, or, or sorry, in, in, in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework off the bat include Australia, Brunei, India, Indonesia, Japan, Republic of Korea, Malaysia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. Um, now, there's a bit of a theme there, and I think you can sort of basically ascertain that many of these countries are either U.S. allies or have generally good relationships with the United States. Um, and for those countries that don't have a particularly developed poli- a political relationship with the United States, they they tend to either be members of the CPTPP and have experience negotiating with the U.S. on these kinds of issues and have then decided to participate. Now, when you sort of dig in a little deeper and you look at, you know, of the participants in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, what else are these countries doing? You have seven of these countries that are part of both CPTPP and RCEP. So that's Australia, Brunei, Japan, Malaysia, New Zealand, Singapore, and Vietnam. All seven of those countries are in both agreements. Then you have sort of Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines, and South Korea, which are not in CPTPP, but in RCEP. And some of those might join CPTPP in the future. And then you have the US and India, which are actually kind of in the same boat here, which is that India is not in CPTPP, certainly, because India is not even a member of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, uh, nor is India and RCEP. India withdrew after participating in the initial negotiations, and the U.S., of course, pulled out from TPP and RCEP. So the other omission is um, the absence of Taiwan in the agreement, which has gotten some scrutiny. Taiwan has applied to join CPTPP. Of course, the U.S. has made support for Taiwan a fundamental pillar of its broader Indo-Pacific efforts. So this also raises questions. 
I think, you know, to use an analogy, and I think other people have also used similar analogies, this is sort of this idea that you have all of these Asian countries that are having a great free trade party. Uh, the U.S. was invited, and the U.S. was instrumental in actually planning that party in one case with the CPTPP. The U.S. pulled out, and now sort of years later, while Asia sort of moved on, and many even U.S. partners, I mean, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, all of these countries want the U.S. to come back to the CPTPP. While all of that is happening, the U.S. sort of shows up, recognizes that it needs to do more on the economic front, and then comes up with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is really a way to show that, look, we understand that these issues matter. We're doing something. Here's our list of issues we think we matter. You know, a lot of this is very, I think, in line with the administration's broader efforts on climate anti-corruption. Uh, it sort of fits that broader democracy versus authoritarianism framing that Biden adopts. But I think it really misses the core of what Asian countries want, which is market access, removable of tariff barriers. They want traditional free trade. Uh, you know, India might be in a different place. And the U.S. and India, again, I think are these two interesting outliers that participate now together in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, but don't participate in any of the other stuff that's going on in the region. So overall, I think it's a really mixed bag. Uh, I'm, I'm personally quite skeptical that the economic framework will have the desired effect of sort of convincing Asian countries that the U.S. is is ready to be a serious economic player in the region. Um, and I think changing that is fundamentally going to be difficult to impossible, just given the domestic political constraints we have in the United States now on free trade. And so I just want to pick up on the domestic politics angle, because I think, you know, you mentioned earlier that this is the key problem for the United States side is the, is the perception of American leaders uh, that the American public is not interested in international free trade. Uh, there are certainly domestic constituencies within the United States that see granting greater market access to Asian countries that have uh, cheaper manufacturing uh, capabilities than the United States does uh, as, you know, robbing Americans of their jobs. And and this is sort of a mantra we've heard over the decades. Um, but I'm curious on your thoughts of how how heavy do you think that this is? And, and we're obviously pivoting to American domestic politics, but is this the kind of thing that is not as serious as, as the Biden administration seems to think it is? Or, you know, because it seems to me that this framework doesn't really work unless it's hooked into the free trade agenda. But the United States' leaders don't seem interested in sort of engaging in that. So I kind of wonder, you know, where can this go from here? You know, I, I figure that these Asian countries are engaging in the IPEF in hopes that the United States will come around on the free trade agenda and they'll have been there the whole time. Uh, but obviously it's not there yet. Well, so, uh, Katie, I think the crux of the issue is really that free trade is bad politics in the United States now. It's bad politics for Democrats, bad politics for Republicans. I think um, Trumpist Republicans, America First Republicans, I think, have a deeper ideological commitment to this. Um, and some Democrats do. And I think uh, there are people in the Biden administration who I think recognize the value of free trade. Many of the people currently in the administration supported and even worked on the TPP. Um, but just in the current domestic political climate, when you have a president who's talked about building a foreign policy for the middle class, for instance, it's very difficult to sell this domestically. So you have this push and pull of who the administration is trying to satisfy. On the one hand, you have American voters, which are the primary constituency, I think, for the American president. Um, and then you have um, the demands of doing judicious statecraft in the Indo-Pacific, where I think the president recognizes that there is this huge demand signal. So you can't just ignore this and have an Indo-Pacific strategy that focuses on other components of national power. 
So it's really an attempt to, I think, fill that vacuum to show that the administration is doing something. I think, you know, time will tell how effective this framework will actually be. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, we had an interesting Australian federal election that resulted in a change in government. Um, the Australian Labour Party under Anthony Albanese uh, is now uh, back in power. And uh, I think the new prime minister certainly began his tenure with an interesting first day in office traveling to a quad summit. Uh, but tell us a little bit, Katie, about uh, the election uh, and, the, and the future direction of Australian foreign policy under the new uh, Labour government. Yeah. So, you know, for the first time in about a decade, the Labour Party has secured an outright majority in the Australian parliament. Uh, Anthony Albanese was sworn in and immediately got on a plane to go to Tokyo for the Quad Summit. Uh, so there was no, um, you know, this is the definition of hitting the ground running, I guess. You have to show up to an inter international summit on your first day. Uh, but when you look at the election and some of the races are still not fully counted and played out because there was a huge surge of independent candidates. Um, so there are certainly some seats that are still undecided, though the Labour's uh, majority is is not questioned at this point. Um, but it's interesting, about a third of Australian voters voted for candidates outside of the major parties. Um, and so, and most of those had were running on climate platforms. These are the so-called teal independents and the Greens. And it really illustrated, certainly for those watching Australian politics, you know, the salience of the climate issue and how deep a whole labor had dug itself by ignoring climate change as a serious policy topic over the last decade. Um, and this ties very much into Australia's relations with Pacific countries uh, for whom climate change is an absolute existential issue um, and and I think had felt over the last decade kind of neglected by uh, Australian government, even as the Australian government was trying to sort of do its own Pacific, what they call it, the reset, the Pacific reset. Um, and so, you know, at the same time that all of this is happening, um, if you reference our episode from uh, our last episode, the Silent Solomon Islands signed a security deal uh, with China, which many sort of Australian commentators um, kind of bashed the Morrison government over. You know, the the Morrison government didn't didn't see this coming and didn't do anything about it. Um, and then, as uh, right after this election um, occurred on on Mar on May twenty first, um, the Chinese foreign minister started a fairly large tour of Pacific Islands. And one of the things that came out, he's in the middle of this tour. Um, one of the things that came out was that China was coming with a trade and security uh, agreement, joint statement that they wanted the Pacific Islands forum countries. So it's a grouping of 10 Pacific countries to sign on to. Um, the draft of that was leaked, uh, as was a letter from the president of the uh, Federated States of Micronesia, uh, who, who I think rightly pointed out that signing on to this agreement was sort of stoking the geopolitical fire a bit too much. And, you know, I think surprising Beijing, um, the PIF nations decided not to sign on to this joint statement. Um, the Chinese ambassador to Fiji, which is where the forum, the meetings were held, you know, acknowledged that Pacific nations had concerns about the agreement and sort of promised that they would continue to discuss this agreement. Um, but I think it's interesting that it, it seemed that 
China sort of came to the Pacific with this agreement, thinking that they would just sign on to the joint statement um, and maybe wasn't expecting there to be so much pushback. Um, so it's certainly been an interesting time in the Pacific. Um, and I'll just add that Fiji has also joined on to the I IPAF. Are we calling it IPAF? IPAF, IPF, yeah, I think IPF, yeah. Well, we'll we'll we'll, fit, we'll figure it out. So I'm sorry if I don't know how to say it yet. Um, but Fiji has also joined into IPF. So there there's certainly um, a Pacific aspect to the, this this China U.S. cleavage uh, in the wider Pacific Indo-Pacific region. Right, and I think I think it actually speaks to the growing geopolitical relevance of the South Pacific in general, given the fact that we've talked about the South Pacific now two podcast episodes <laughs> in a row, which is certainly. A first in the eight years of doing this uh and so i don't know if that's an indicator but but it does feel like a little bit uh, of an indicator um but yeah i think i think um you know just to reflect very quickly on the albanese government i think i think in a lot of areas we are going to see continuity uh just with a different temperament uh in in canberra i i think things like AUKUS, uh, the u.s australia alliance of course which is the the cornerstone of australian security and defense policy um, Australia's broader engagement with the Quad and the region. I think a lot of that is going to continue. Uh, I think the Quad summit was a very good uh, demonstrative moment uh, of that. Um, so broadly speaking, I think, um, you know, issues like climate change, environmental issues, there we might see a bigger change. And I think most certainly in how Australia engages its neighborhood and, and the South Pacific. But uh, certainly I think, um, you know, uh, the... Um, the new administration in Canberra will be uh, one to watch closely in the in the coming months. Yeah, I think it'll definitely be worth watching, and and I fully agree with you. I don't I don't see much change uh, on the big items uh, regarding Australia's engagement with the wider Pacific, the Quad. Um, you know trade deal with India that was I think agreed in in April. You know those are things that we don't really see changing, but. I do think there's opportunity for the new government to sort of reestablish Australia with with partners, particularly in the Pacific, that it had kind of lost uh, lost the plot with uh, under the Morrison government. Um, and and frankly, if the Albanese government doesn't really start addressing climate change as a serious issue, it's not going to be in office very long. Um, you know, if you look at sort of the details of the election and the the um, large. A uh, role played by independents and the Greens in sort of causing this outcome for the election. Um, we have a we actually just ran a piece today by one of our Oceana writers, Grant, um, looking at the the Australian voting system and how it sort of plays into the ability of of third parties and, and independents to kind of uh, redirect and, and really illustrate the preferences of voters in a way that a two party system doesn't always allow. Um, but the the point being, if those issues aren't addressed, then the you know. Australian democracy has has ways of, of uh, changing the government. So um, I think it'll be worth watching. And certainly the, the Pacific, um, we've talked about a lot more in 2022 than we have uh, in previous years. So it's uh, worth watching. Absolutely. Well, uh, Katie, I think we'll leave it there today. Uh, as always, for our listeners, uh, thanks, thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard on the show, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do that. You can do that anywhere you get your podcasts, really. And we do appreciate that quite a bit. Uh, and finally, uh, do reach out to either Katie or me if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to uh, hear us address on the podcast or if you have other general feedback uh, about the show. We uh, are always happy to uh, engage with our community. So uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.